This morning, um, I want to talk to you about uh, were it not for grace. Have you ever stopped and you ever asked yourself, were it not for the grace of God, where would I be? Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, we probably ask that a lot. And um, one thing that I want to look at this morning, I just want to read it uh, for us. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Any baseball fans out there? Baseball? Okay, so you got some baseball fans. All right, well, spring is here, right? Because the season has begun. And, uh, you know, I think we all like uh, comeback stories, and there's a lot of different comeback stories in the realm of, of baseball, uh, one I'll be touching on a little later. Uh, but we all know the story of a football player named Kurt Warner. And uh, it's hard to believe that Probably some 10 years ago, he was bagging groceries for about six bucks an hour. And uh, then he moved on to the Rams to a Super Bowl victory. And then he was dumped five years ago by them, by uh, St. Louis. He went to New York, played for the Giants, lost his starting job to Eli Manning, as you know. Um, And most people looked at Kurt Warner and said, you know, here's a guy who is a star, but he's just burned out. There's nothing left. Um, But he was able to sign a one-year contract with the Arizona Cardinals, who at the time were the closest the NFL came to having a minor league team. (laughs) They just were not real good. Um, And Warner's contract was extended one more year, and you know, year after that. And, And then last year, Warner led the Cardinals to the first ever Super Bowl experience and appearance there uh, for the Cardinals. Um, You know, there's something about stories like that when you find someone who is just down and out and just at the end of the rope, people are assuming that it's just all gone, it's all dried up, there's nothing left, you know. And uh, we call them comeback stories, uh, uh, worst to first stories, you know, whatever you want to call it. But today, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, it marks probably the greatest comebacks in all of history. Now, those of you who were with us on Friday night at our Good Friday service, we looked at the Passion of Christ. And it looked a few days just before the first Resurrection Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, you might say. Uh, it looked like everything Jesus had tried to do to build his earthly ministry had ended in failure. Everybody surrounded him thought, this is it, this is over. He was arrested. We know from the scriptures he was sentenced to death. He was betrayed by one of his closest followers. Um, And basically the rest of them abandoned Christ. He died alone. And he was placed in a borrowed tomb just to kind of show you where he was um, as far as status goes. Mary, as we read this morning, looked right into the eyes of Christ and thought it was the gardener. (laughs) His followers were just startled. They were stunned. They were numb by the events that happened because they thought for sure 
that he was going to pull everything off and everything was going to have a happy ending. And we know that on that Sunday morning, the Spirit of God entered his cold, lifeless body. His eyes opened. His blood began to flow again. His lungs filled with air. And he stood to his feet in the power of resurrected life. And from what the Bible says, in the months and years that followed, the disciples that abandoned Christ, that one time didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore because he had died, all of a sudden they became bold. Something happened. Something changed them. They became fearless because they wanted to witness to his resurrection and of his resurrection. They were no longer afraid of death because they had seen and they had experienced the power of God in a very real and a very dramatic way, not only when he was alive, but when he was risen from the dead. After the resurrection of Christ, his followers began spreading the message throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, throughout the entire world. And thousands upon thousands of people became followers of the risen Savior. And they surrendered surrendered their lives to his lordship. And obviously this caught the attention of many religious leaders, even in Jesus' day. And one religious leader went by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And he made it his own personal goal to basically determine, to erase the memory of Jesus and his fledgling movement from the face of the earth. And his strategy basically was, I'm just going to kill every Christian that I run into. I'm going to imprison them. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to wipe them off. And then this crazy little religion that's over here in the corner will finally be done away with. And he didn't care if he had to do it one fanatic at a time. He was going to complete his mission. And he traveled throughout all the countryside, persecuting and executing believers. That was his goal. That was his role. And he was a religious leader of his day. The first time we see him is in Acts 7, when Stephen is stoned to death. And after Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Luke writes this in Acts 8.1. He says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. This is a man that hated Christians so much he would sit there at, a, at the, the graveside of, a, of a, one, a Christian who is dying, literally, of being stoned to death and say, hey, thumbs up, this is a good thing that's happening here. Luke later describes in Acts 9-1 that Saul went around breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. See, that's the kind of man he was. He hated Christians with a passion. But we know the story one day, when he was on his way to a city called Damascus, hoping to round up and kill some more Christians, take them and imprison them and beat them and do whatever he did to them, he was confronted, the Bible says, by a flash of light from heaven. And it says he also heard a voice of the Jewish rabbi whose followers he had been persecuting. The Lord Jesus himself revealed himself on that road to Saul of Tarsus. And from that day on, he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. From that day on, you can document, you can look at his life, and it took a new direction. And he also took a new name. The Saul that we know of scriptures that used to persecute and, and hate and, and kill Christians 
His new name became Paul, the Apostle Paul. He spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting churches throughout the known world, writing letters. Most of the New Testament is written by this man who once murdered followers of Christ. And people say, well, the Bible's just another book. (laughs) If I was going to write a book, I don't think I would include all that stuff. See, these letters make up about half of the books of the New Testament. About 20 years after this life-changing experience, Paul wrote the letter that we're going to look at here in 1 Corinthians. He wrote it to a church in Corinth. And in chapter 15, if you'll turn there and just follow along, he talks about the resurrection. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received... And in which you stand, he's writing to Christians here, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, it is possible to believe in vain. You know that? Some people say, well, I believe. Well, that's great. But has that belief changed you in any way? People say, well, I have faith. Well, has that faith changed you in any way? Because if it hasn't, a wrong belief or it's a dead faith verse 3 he says for i delivered to you first of all that which i also received that christ jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures that's the gospel beloved and that he was seen by cephas and then by the 12 verse 6 after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, speaking of this present day. But some have fallen asleep or died. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was also seen by me. (laughs) As by one born out of due time. See, Paul wasn't with the other disciples and he wasn't part of Jesus following then. And Christ had already died, been resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And he wanted Saul to be transformed in such a way that he made a special trip, literally, back down to convert this man. Pretty incredible. goes on in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, and this is kind of what we're going to be looking at today, whom am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether I was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. 
Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitied. See, when Paul was speaking of the resurrection, he understood that it was the cornerstone of the Christian faith. When someone wants to attack Christianity, when someone wants to attack Christ, where do they go? They go to the resurrection. Because if, hey, great, great, Christ was beaten, he was flogged, he was humiliated, and he held his own, he held his tongue, he didn't retaliate in any way, he took it like a man, he went up on the cross, he died. Great. But if that's all he did, if it stops at the cross, we don't have, we don't have anything. <laughs> we don't have anything. We have a guy that died a noble death on a cross. But if what's true, if what the Bible said is true, that Christ on the third day rose from the dead, if that is true, if that truth is true, we have everything. As a matter of fact, outside of Christ, we have nothing. (laughs) And so the resurrection is the the cornerstone of our faith. Because it's, it's by the resurrection that Jesus proved who he said he was. See, during his earthly ministry, you remember, we've been looking at that in the Gospel of Matthew, which we'll be back into next week. But during his earthly ministry, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He went around saying, I am the Son of God. He claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He claimed to have power to save us from our sins. Those are bold claims. And he backed them up, not only by the miracles he did. He backed them up after dying on the cross on the eve of the Passover celebration. He rose again from the grave on Sunday morning. And just like the song says, because he lives, now we can live too, truly. Life is worth living because he lives. That's the only reason it's worth living. Everything you see around you today in the world will one day be gone, will be burnt up. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it just happens that way. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is slowly winding down. Everything is slowly deteriorating. If you don't believe me, look in the mirror. I don't look in the mirror anymore. I just get, you know, it's kind of depressing after a while. You know, you got to buy a new car and it's all nice and new. And a couple of years, it's just kind of worn out. Some of the shine's gone, and even though you try to take care of it, it's still kind of ratty here and there, and you're thinking, wow, what happened? This used to be a brand new car. Everything is winding down, beloved. The only two things that are going to last that we see around us, the only two eternal things 
are literally the word of God and the souls of men and women. That's it. That's it. All the houses, all the, the, you know, the, the earth, everything is going to be burned up one day. So without the resurrection, we don't have anything. But with it, we have everything. See, without the resurrection, Jesus wasn't just another cult leader leading a bunch of people in a heresy. But with the resurrection, Jesus proved that he is who he claimed to be. And I think that that's so important that we understand that here this morning. Paul discovered that truth. When Christ met him on the road to Damascus, his eyes were opened. And it was only by the grace of God that that could happen. Over in Titus chapter 2, it tells us, For the grace of God, verse 11, appeared, bringing salvation for all people. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to make you a new person, to transform you. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. See, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by His grace. We're saved by His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified... What's that word justified mean? That means justified, being made right with God. And you don't make yourself right with God. God makes you right with Him. He's the one that holds the power to make you just before Him. And we're justified through Christ. So that being, it says, justified by his, what? Grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 11, Paul said, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's the same Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead. It lives within us as believers. And it says, And just as God raised Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living in you. See, the one thing we need to understand is that the Bible says that when we're outside of Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're dead. Our brother Paul was telling me that when they were gathered around my brother's in the hospital room there, and they Thursday night, Thursday afternoon, made a decision, you know, he, he had viral pneumonia in both lungs, I think 73 or something, and uh, he, viral pneumonia in both lungs, smoked all his life pretty much, so he was kind of weak at that point anyway. But they said that he got a colon infection. So then they were going to have to take the colon out, and he'd have to live with a bag, our brother wouldn't want that, trust me. And they had to make a decision. Okay, are they going to let him hooked up to this, you know, intubator and just keep this going on because he couldn't breathe on his own? Would he want to live that way? Or would they disconnect him? And the doctor said, you know, he's not going to live through another surgery. There's no way. 
And so when they disconnected everything from him, they just had him sedated. My brother said that basically, you know, his kids were there and they were able to talk with him a little bit and stuff. But it was a very short time and he just was laying there and, and he just kind of fell asleep. No struggle, nothing. Okay. Um, it's, it's important for us to understand that every breath we take is by the grace of God. And at one time, there's going to come a time in our lives when we'll be there. And we're going to breathe our last. And after he breathed his last, the body grows cold and there's no life in it. You know, it's, it's kind of funny when you go to funerals and, and you, you hear people. It's not funny to go to funerals, but it's funny what you, people say at funerals sometimes, you know. And, and I heard this the other day when we were doing Mary's service, you know. Um, and, and, and I don't mean disrespectfully say this, but it's, well, doesn't she look nice? Well, she looks dead. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, when, when someone is dead, they're dead. There's no life there. That's not, that wasn't Mary in that casket. Mary's with the Lord. That's just a, a tent that she was wearing for a while while she was here on earth. And, it, and it's so important that we understand that, you know what, we put a lot more emphasis on the external than we do the internal. And the Bible says that before we come to Christ, we were dead in our trespasses. That means lifeless. There was no way that a dead body is going to be able to, on its own, get up and, you know, move something or do whatever. They can't do it. It has to be moved. It has to have some an outward force come and, and move it because it can't do it on its own. That's what the Bible says we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Well, Paul here talks about the grace of God several times, and he gives us basically three principles, talking about the transformation that takes place when someone comes to Christ, when someone tastes of the grace of God, because it's, it's by the grace of God that we're saved. We're not saved by coming to church. We're not saved by joining the church. We're not saved by getting baptized. We're not saved by taking communion. We're not saved by giving tithes and offerings. We're not saved by witnessing to people. We're not saved by any activity of our own. Nothing. We're saved by the grace of God, the Bible says. And the first thing I want you to see here in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. The first thing we need to understand is we need the grace of God so that we can come to grips with who we really are. Who are we really? See, the grace of God has to be shed upon our life before we'll understand who we really are. Because the Apostle Paul didn't walk around before he was saved saying, yeah, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. That's not what he said at all. Matter of fact, he said, I got power to take your life and I'm going to do it. And he killed thousands of Christians probably because he thought he was somebody. He says, in fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. See, we need to come to a point in our lives where we ask God for the grace so that we can see who we really are. That doesn't mean on the external. That means what's going on inside. Because you all know, and I all know, we can all put on a really nice show. We can, you know, just 
put on the show and everything's just fine and dandy. You know, part of, <laughs> it's interesting, Thursday night we were practicing worship and, and Bika called me and said, your brother just passed away. And my answer was, okay, thanks. And, and we went back to practicing worship. That's just me. That's how I process things. Okay, and then we're playing the rest of the songs, and I'm thinking, this is kind of rude. I should probably let them know. So I let the rest of the worship team know. You can ask my wife. I deal with grief differently than most people, maybe because I'm exposed to a lot in different ways, but I just process it differently. But it's, it's, it's important to understand that we need the grace of God to really understand who we are, who we are. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the apostle, the apostle Paul writes this. This is a trustworthy statement, and everyone should accept it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. And then he says this. Hey, right here, I'm the worst one. <laughs> See, Paul didn't try to whitewash his past. He came right down and he admitted it. I mean, I think in most churches, what's needed is a healthy dose of transparency. That's what we need. We got enough people walking around with plastic smiles on their face. Oh, praise the Lord. This is great. That's not real. Let's get down to where real life is. That's what Christ would want. Paul didn't try to pretend to be better than he really was. He didn't try to cover up anything. See, a lot of people play that kind of a game. They, 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 they give you a, an outside appearance of, of what, you know, they, they want you to think they are. But really, on the inside, there's other motives. There's a lot of stuff going on that we don't even see. And then we're so surprised when they react a certain way. Sometimes when you witness to people, you'll hear people say, you know, I don't need a Savior. I, I'm not a big sinner. I, you know, I... I mean, I've made some mistakes in my life, but, you know, what do I need to save you for? I haven't murdered anybody. And sometimes we need to stop and we need to ask people questions concerning when they say that. Maybe they're married. Talk to their wife. <laughs> They'll tell you how much a sinner they are. Maybe they're kids. Maybe they're employees or the people they work with. See, a lot of times we try to justify our behavior. We call it denial. Because we don't want to really believe that what the Bible says about us is true, that we're filthy, rotten sinners, and we deserve a place called hell. And except for the grace of God, that's where we're all going to go. John said in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, in 1 John he said, If we claim that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. And we're not living in the truth, the Bible says. See, this is where many of us find ourselves. We, we claim that we have no sin, but really, we all have sinned. Some of our sins have been forgiven because we put our faith and trust in Christ. And those who haven't, they're, they're still dealing with the guilt and the burden of sin. And that's why he continues in verse 9 of 1 John 1. He says, if we confess our sins to him, to God... 
Some people say, well, see, that gives you an option there, if we. He's talking to, to, to basically believers here. If we confess our sins. Really, I think the proper rendering of that verse should be since we confess our sins. Because what would stop you from going to God, and the word confession simply means to say the same thing, to admit that you've done something wrong. What would stop you from going to a loving, gracious, forgiving God who's already forgiven you of everything, going to Him and saying, hey, you know what, I blew it again. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help me move on. What would stop you from doing that? Unless, for some reason, you thought that maybe God's up there with a big club ready to hit you every time you come and say, oh, God, I blew it again. Ah, you bad, bad child, you know. That's not the God we serve if we've been touched with God's grace. So since we confess our sins to him because there's no threat of punishment from him, only forgiveness, God never punishes his children. Somebody ever tells you that, they're wrong. God disciplines his children. There's a big difference. But God never punishes his children because his children are forgiven. And then it says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And not only that, but to cleanse us from all wickedness or all unrighteousness. See, transformation begins when you become honest with yourself by the grace of God about who you are. That, hey, you know what? I'm a sinner. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve God's mercy. I don't deserve God's grace. I definitely don't deserve God's blessing. I mean, Paul didn't walk around after Christ appeared to him saying, yep, well, Jesus came back for me because I'm such a great leader and he needed me and I'm just so talented and gifted. That's why God saved me. That's not what the Apostle Paul said. He didn't say that at all. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the bottom of the barrel. I'm the chief of sinners. He never forgot who he was before he met Christ. That's a good observation for us who have been Christians for a while. Let us never forget who we were before we met Christ, before we were touched by God's grace. Because a lot of times people in the church walk around people who are outside the church with their noses in the air, thinking that everybody else is just so bad, so bad, and, oh, you can't hang around those people, and, oh, that person drinks, or this person smokes, and, oh, gosh, might contaminate us somehow. Silly. The Bible says that... Jesus went to those people with the gospel message. And I think we're supposed to do the same the last time I checked. So we're not to build four walls and lock ourselves in here and say, us four, no more, that's it. But he's called us to break down the walls and to go out into the highways and the byways and share the life-giving, gracious, loving forgiveness of our Lord and Savior through the gospel of Christ. And when God uses that message and he touches people's hearts, all of a sudden they're like the apostle Paul or like Saul was. Wow, I'm really bad. All the, all the pretense is gone. All your goodness is gone because all of a sudden you're not comparing yourself to your neighbor who cheats on his wife and is, cheats on his taxes. You're comparing yourself to a holy God. See? And when you compare yourself to a holy God, the best person on earth compared to a holy God is the chief of sinners. But that can only happen through the grace of God. There's a sense in which we forget the past. Some of that's good, some of that's not so good. Because God, God does forgive our sins and he forgets them forever. The Bible says that. 
But I think sometimes there's a sense in which we need to remember the past. We need to remember who we were without him and how much we desired his grace. The first step toward transformation, the first step toward Christ is coming to grips with who you really are. You know, there's some here today that it's time you step up and admit and just say, you know what, I got, I got an issue with this. I got an issue with that. I got a temper problem. I got an anger problem. I got a drinking problem. I got a lust problem. I got gossip problems. I got whatever. Don't kid yourself. Look at yourself and say, I'm not such a bad person after all. You hear people say that all the time. Well, you know, I, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I love to say, you know what? Name the Ten Commandments to me right now. What do you mean? Well, you just said you try to keep them. So I'm thinking if you're trying to keep them, you must know what they are. And usually they just look, okay, I get the point. You know, we can't keep the Ten Commandments. Who do we think we are? They weren't given for us to keep. They were given so that we could be shown how sinful we really are. There's not a person in this room who's never told a lie or never lusted or never taken something irrespective of its value. We've all done that. And we need the grace of God to see who we really are. Get out of that denial and get into the reality of who you really are. Secondly, the principle here I see is that we need the grace of God so that we can surrender our life completely to His grace. First, we have to realize that we're utterly lost. Secondly, we have to have the grace of God touch us so that we can surrender to God. See, it's only through the grace of God that you can experience lasting change. Look at what he says in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 15. But whatever I am now, it's all because what? God poured out his special favor on me. And not without results or not in vain. The New International Version says this. His grace to me was not without effect. I love that. It changed. Something changed. It reminds us that when you have an experience with God's grace, it has an effect on you. It changes you from the inside out. So you can only have that kind of change when you come into contact with the grace of God. That's the only way. There's a guy on TV that counsels everybody. and His phrase, he often uses this phrase when he's talking on his show after people kind of spell out their problem, you know, ah, I'm not getting along with my wife, and so therefore I'm drinking or whatever. And he always says this, well, tell me, how's that working for you? You know what I'm talking about. Someone says they drink about their problems, well, yeah, how's that working for you? Does alcohol really make your problems go away? Someone says, well, you know, I yell at my wife and kids, and I'm stressed out from work or whatever, and he'll say, well, how's that working for you? <laughs> I mean, the answer's obvious. It's not working. My wife resents me. My kids hate me. And then I get even more stressed out. It's not working. See, when it comes to creating change in your life, you need to take a look at what you're doing and you need to ask yourself this question. How's it working? Is it working? Especially when it comes to your relationship with God and your quest for holiness and righteousness in your life. You need to ask yourself, is trying to do better working for you? 
You really think that you can do better and God's going to look down one day when you do your best and He's going to say, wow, thumbs up, man. You're, you're, i got a special place for you. You don't need to go through the Jesus thing. You're just so good yourself because you tried so hard. It's not going to happen that way, fellas. It's not going to happen that way, ladies. It's going gonna, it's gonna to basically, we're going to have to come before God and we're going to have to turn to Him because we need His grace. No matter how hard we try to change ourselves, we don't have the power to do it. We just don't. Paul knew that. He said in Romans 17, I don't understand myself. For I do, for I want to do what is right. This is a classic struggle in the Christian's life. I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. (laughs) Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Or, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the only way you're going to change is going to take a miracle to change you. You can't change yourself. We just can't do that. We can't do it by the strength of our character or willpower or whatever. You can go to all the Tony Robbins seminars you want and walk on all the hot, fiery coals you want. You're not going to be able to have this kind of lasting change in your life. We need a one-on-one experience with the power of God, and that's his resurrection power. See, that's why the resurrection is such good news, because it shows us the power of God. Paul says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and to I to give life to our mortal bodies. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a what? A new person. The old is gone. The new life has begun. What does it mean to come to Christ? It means to see that kind of a transformation in your life. To experience change in your life, you first must experience the power of God's grace in your life. His grace to show you who you really are, a sinner in need of His grace. And then to turn to Him and to totally surrender your life to Him. That's why Paul says in in verse 10 there, whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out this special favor on me. His grace, He poured it poured it out on me. Some of us here today have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior years ago, probably. And some have been trying to do your best, to do what's right ever since then. And you know what? You're fighting a losing battle. See, many Christians make that same mistake. I remember when I was first converted to Christ and I first got saved, I was all excited. And I thought, okay, I've got to change all this stuff now. And I got frustrated real quick because certain sins just kept on coming back into my life. And I thought, well, what's going on here? I thought I was a Christian now. I thought, And then I read this verse in Galatians 3.3. 3. It says, after starting your Christian life in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, why... Are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? See, somehow we get into our mind that once we become a Christian, then we have to just hunker down and do the Christian thing. 
You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you give tithes to the church, you do all this stuff, you witness. And it comes across as this have-to kind of a thing because somehow we think if we don't do it, well, maybe we're not saved. I mean, if you're saved by the grace of God, do you think that keeping you saved is going to be works? I don't think so. I'm not saying works are bad. We all should see the evidence of our salvation in our lives. But I want you to understand here this morning, you will never become perfect through your own human effort because you don't have that kind of power. That power belongs to God and to God only. And the neat thing is He gives it to us freely if you're willing to receive it. If you just, you know, appeal to you today, surrender your life completely to the grace of God. He's not going to turn you into some weird religious freak and send you out on the highways and byways with a 20-pound Bible on your hand, you know, and a big wooden cross hanging around your neck. That's not our God. That's not the kind of God we serve. He's going to take you just like you are with your gifts, with your personality, with your talents. And yeah, he's probably going to knock off some of the rough edges that are there. And over time, he's going to continue to do that and mold you more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But it's not like one day you're a Christian and the next day, who is that guy? Wow, boy, I don't even know. He talks different, everything. It doesn't happen that way. He takes all of our personality, our abilities, and he just folds it into his wonderful purpose for our life. And all of a sudden, he uses us in a way that we could never be used if we were never touched by His grace. Pray that you would ask Him to change what you don't have the strength to change today. Yield your life, Dan. After you come to grips with your own inability and after you surrender your life completely to God's grace, the third step I see here that Paul says is we need the grace of God so that we can ask God to give us the strength to take one more step. <laughs> take that next step. Paul said in verse 10, whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his grace on me through the special favor. And then he says this, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God was working through me by his grace. Ask God to show you that grace to take that next step. In another letter, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can just turn over there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Because he goes into detail just how hard he worked. Listen to all the troubles that this guy put up with in his ministry. 2 Corinthians verse 11, um, or chapter 11, verse 20, 20, uh, 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. And they are, the seed, are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, more measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And that doesn't mean the, you know, the, the, the funny little weed stuff. He's talking about literally be having stones hurled at him. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in the deep, 
in journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger, in thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor... Under Aretas, the king was guarding the city of Damascus with the garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and escaped from the hands. Talk about an incredible experience. This guy just had calamity after calamity after calamity. And he says, hey, I'm going to keep going. That doesn't sound like the guy that says, you know what? I don't understand myself. Why am I doing these things? I'm doing these things to hate. You know, the things I'm not supposed to do, that's what I'm doing. And the things that I'm, uh, I'm supposed to do, I'm not doing. What happened? Do you think he just woke up one day and said, oh, I'm just going to change my attitude? No. Paul found the strength to keep doing the right thing in the grace of God. How do you endure hardship? How do you deal with 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 financial stress in our day and age? How do you deal with hardship in the, the, the workplace or in a marriage or in a family? What keeps us from just giving up? See, Paul was able to keep on going because every day the grace of God was upon his life and it gave him one more step toward holiness in Christ. He says, it's not I, but God who works through me, in his grace. See, today, I don't know what you're facing. I really don't. I can't know unless you tell me. But I guarantee you there's people in this place this morning that the range of emotions are going on right now. I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know where you're at physically, emotionally. I don't know. But God does. God knows exactly where you're at. Maybe today you feel like you're always struggling and you'll always be struggling. Maybe you feel a little depressed or a little disappointed and you feel, you know what, that's just, I guess that's just me. I'm always going to be that way. Or maybe you're feeling a little lonely. Or maybe you feel that that addiction just will never go away. Or that you'll just always open up your wallet and there'll be no money there. You'll always be broken. See, the idea of becoming good might be very hard for you to even imagine right now. See, but all you need to do is you need to go to God and you need to say, God, you know what? Give me the grace to take the next step in the right direction. Just one more step, God. That's where he'll meet you. And God's grace will give you the power to take that step. That step toward the Savior. That step that will free you from all the bondage and the guilt and the burdens that you're carrying. That step that will allow you to know for certain that when you give your last breath, 
You will be ushered into the glories of heaven. It's all because of his grace. It's not because of who we are. We're not good people. We're just sinners saved by grace. And we need to remind ourselves of that. I was reading this past week about Cal Ripken's uh, record. The one where he played 2,632 consecutive baseball games. That's amazing. That record would probably stay in the books forever. It'll definitely be remembered as a legend of baseball. See, a lot of times sports records are set when a player gets into a hot streak. You got everything going good, they're in good shape, everything's, and he has a good game or a good month or even maybe a, a good season. You look at Cal Ripken's re- record, it's a result of a hot streak that lasted more than 16 years. How do you do that? How do you do that? Day after day, he says he simply took the next step in the right direction, one game at a time. Something you may not know about. Ripken, in his first year as a pro while playing in a minor league in West Virginia, he made his mark in the record book in a different way. He committed a league-leading 33 errors (laughs) at shortstop. Not a good start, (laughs) say the least. But since his dad was already known and well-known in the world of baseball, a lot of his critics and pundits said that "Ah, he's just an overrated kid. He's not good enough to be in the big leagues. But Cal Ripken kept taking one step in the right direction, one game at a time. Later in his career, he went 95 consecutive games without making an error. And he committed only three in an entire season. That holds another record. His habit of taking one more step led him through his own worst-to-first journey. It's a journey that we all must take. God wants to pour out his grace in your life. He wants to reveal himself to you in a way that will be transforming. He wants to give you victory over sin. He wants to give you power to live the life of your dreams. I mean, maybe today you're feeling the worst of the worst. He wants you to change directions. He wants you to stop chasing after the world and all it's offering you because it's all empty. There's nothing there. There's been so many rich people and wealthy people that have, have, have lived their full life just in opulence, finding only that at the end of their life they say, you know what, I think the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. It's just empty. Nothing in all this. Admit that you can't do it on your own. Ask God to ignite that transforming power of his grace in your life. And he'll do it. He'll help you take that step. Don't be afraid. God loves you. He cares for you. He sent his only son to die for you. He rose him from the dead so that you would have the power over sin and over death. Take that step in the right direction and see where he might lead you. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, how he was 
just overcome by your grace on the road to Damascus. And Lord, that when he came to you and he gave his life to you, you changed that man. You used everything that he was, and yet you took away all of his sin. You forgave it. And God, you chose to use him in an incredible way. And Lord, you choose to use us. Lord, I know that you know where everyone stands here in this room. Only you do. Only you can look into the heart of man and woman and see if they've yielded that heart to you or not. And so, Lord, I pray that even now in the quietness of this moment, that they would cry out to you if they haven't trusted you. And that's what it is. It's trust. It's being willing to trust something that's bigger than ourselves. I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I need your mercy. I need your grace. I know I don't deserve it, but I need it. Because I know that even of the Ten Commandments, I don't keep them. I fall short. Your Bible tells us that we all fall short. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But the Bible also says that there's good news in Christ because he was risen from the dead. He is the risen Savior. I pray that you would cry out to him this morning. God, save me. Save me from my sin. Make me the person you desire me to be. He'll do that for you this morning. Just pray that prayer. Just to cry out to him. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my way, the sinful way, and to turn to you. Do that work in my heart. He'll answer that prayer. Christians, be reminded that we need to remember where we've come from. And that we, if we've tasted the grace of God, that the grace of God should be ever-present in our lives. And that means the way we interact, not only with those of the world, but with each other. That our relations, our conversation, should always be seasoned with God's grace. And when it's not, we need to turn to you and we need to repent. We need to yield back our heart through the filling of the Spirit to you. Help us to be a picture of God's grace to a lost and dying world. And Lord, we just thank you that we can have all these things in Christ in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.